Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Urban Hoffna joins us from Munich, Germany. Urban is a senior software developer at Risk Methods and the co-host of the podcast, Expanding Beyond. Urban Hoffna, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And after listening to a few episodes, I, what I came up with was basically well-maintained software is software that is maintained. A bit of a tautology, I would say. But to me, that what it's what it boils down to. If you spend some time all the time looking after your code base, I mean, it's probably not going to fix everything, but it's already going to make uh, matters much better than if you just develop your new features and leave everything uh, the way it was before. And then you end up with a huge mess and then you need to spend all the time cleaning it up. What, what are some characteristics of a messy code base where that hasn't been, been taken care of? Is it just that if, that they never spend time on any cleanup type tasks or maintenance type tasks? Yeah, it's also, I think, maybe that's just a recency bias. What I've uh, seen recently is basically well-intentioned problems, and what I, what I would call it, is that you realize that the old way of doing something, some, I don't know, service object or whatever process you used wasn't really working, and you come up with the new shiny way of doing stuff. And then obviously you're not going to finish it and redo everything. And then you do that a few times in a row, and then you end up with, I don't know, five, six different ways of doing the same things. And then no one really knows what to expect anymore. And you spend a lot more time trying to actually understand because you sort of jump from one way of doing things to another way along the way. In your experience, have you seen that happen a lot because of just team uh, attrition, people coming and going from a team? Or have you seen that often show up where it's like, very much the same few people working on the software project, yet they're kind of working on new things and new shiny approaches and patterns, but never going back? Or has it been a bit of both? Yeah, probably a bit of both. But the first one is probably the bigger one. That's true. Yeah. If the person sort of that came up with the way is actually leaving, then no one knows anymore what it's what it was supposed to be look like. And there's no one sort of no, no guardian, I guess. <laughs> that can look after this stuff. I think that's one of the things that I think a lot of the types of companies that my company helps with are, are provides, we're a consulting business. And so companies come to us, they're like, there's often a lack of context because those original people are no longer around or someone came in and maybe they're, they'll speak about a software developer who knew everything or had everything in their head or they documented when they left and go get a new job or something. But there's still like this lack of like, persistent context about why things were done the way they were and why they use certain patterns. So sometimes it can be difficult to go into those environments and say, well, this is an interesting pattern. Why did they go down this path? And you, so you kind of don't necessarily fully wrap your head around it. Have you, do you have a lot of experience joining projects where there is the kind of, where you've seen it done well, where there was a lot of good, um, you were able to 
wrap your head around the context due to, I don't know, I'm, I don't want to kind of say why, but like maybe things like documentation or just, it, it was, it was very clear to you. Yeah. I mean, a bit of an unfair example. The one case where it actually worked well was where one of, so there was a startup. One of the founders was actually the CTO who started writing the code and he just stayed on. Right. And then you always have that one person who can maybe not writing the code day to day anymore, but he's sort of still having an eye on it. And then you can actually see that it might not be perfect, but at least there's a certain style to it. And it's much easier to, to follow what's going on. So maybe there's a, uh, an argument for having a technical co-founder that is never allowed to leave for a business to be, you know, for the other people to be able to come in and be able to have access to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the other <laughs> side is obviously having basically no technical founder and then you have some some agency build the first prototype for you and then it's of course never a prototype but the actual application <laughs> no. and then you <laughs> those people obviously leave eventually and oftentimes there's no real handover and then you end up with the situation like we talked about that you don't really have anyone to ask how to do stuff in which style and then you sort of deteriorates in that way it's, it's very true that um, it's interesting for, for a long time, our company did a lot of like projects with startups and admittedly, one of the things we, one of the reasons we stopped doing that work because we didn't get to keep those clients for a really long time because most startups, you know, don't succeed uh, in finding like a good pro product market fit. And so I like to describe myself as a very lazy salesperson for being a consultancy. So I want to work with companies that have been around for two to five plus years have budget, understand like that there's long-term support and maintenance. And I know there's a lot of agencies out there that have their teams are really good at maybe spinning up those initial MVPs for projects and will um, you know help ship that and maybe provide support for a year or two. But then a couple of years after they've launched it, they start to be like, well, we want to work with another new projects on the new thing and not be the ones taking care of the day-to-day -day support. So that's where I kind of like my company comes into play. I'm curious, like, you know, as you mentioned, have you actually ever worked in like a agency type world yourself? Sort of. I, I was freelancing for a while, so I hopped from project to project. So, but I think both approaches are valid and, and I guess it is, you're just optimized for something else, right? For as a, as a startup, it's, I guess it is fine that you just cut corners all the time because they need to get something out and the money is not limitless and then if you succeed and need to rewrite it then that just means you made it right so in a sense it's a good problem to have right <laughs> compared to the other 99 percent of startups that never make it what's your take on the metaphor technical debt do you use it on a regular basis in your day-to-day -day work not as a term um as a concept sure uh, you always have to weigh your options uh, do i really now need to build the perfect solution do i even know what it is is sort of the the other question to ask there or is it fine to just say hey for the time being we're just gonna do the thing the smallest thing possible might not be perfect but it's what we need now and i would say it's not 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 a term i use anymore but it's sort of ingrained in all decision making i would say did you use it in the past and do you feel like you your understanding of the the term changed as you had, you know, kind of grew in your career? I would say so, yeah. Um, I think the, the change isn't necessarily of 
I think my bigger biggest change was sort of if once I I transitioned to being a manager when you sort of see it from the other side where you say, hey, it might be nice to build a perfect shiny technical solution, but on the other hand, we actually need to ship something and we have to some kind of business value to provide. And then sometimes it is actually beneficial to say, hey, we're going to release that now and it's going out and hopefully we're going to make some money and then afterwards we have more more time to actually look into it and fix it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, you know, you mentioned kind of the manager path, and that's one of the topics I wanted to, to dig in with you. So let's get into that now. Uh, I know that you, through your career journey, you know, you navigated from being a programmer and then went down the path and became a manager, and you've since decided to go back to being an individual contributor programmer. What did you learn through that experience? I got into a manager in in a startup to to sort of the management role because. Well, there was no no one, right? There was the CTO, and then there were the programmers, <laughs> and I wanted to have this 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 uh, engineering manager. And I thought, hey, it's a startup, I can maybe try that. Um, I was sort of interested in understanding more about team dynamics and and all that stuff after having, I don't know, maybe not exhausted all the technical things to learn, but it wasn't that interesting anymore. And sort of, I tried to broaden my horizon there. Sort of what I learned about myself personally is that I'm not a good manager. <laughs> so there's obviously in hindsight, there's it, it, it's a completely different skill set that you have to have. Being a programmer, you're very analytical and you have to sort of figure out all the details and stuff like that to program. But as a manager, you're more sort of, there's more of a human side, right? And that was what was difficult for me. But on the other hand, it was actually nice to sort of, as they call it, be in the room and sort of see more of of the whole process of, hey, there's a feature we maybe want to build this year strategically. And then you have to figure out um, where does it fit in? Can we even do it? And sort of that part, which I guess these days gets sometimes put into staff engineer roles as well. That, that's sort of the interesting part to me. And so at, the, at that moment you that you became a manager, there was a void in the team right at that point. There was a, maybe a new position or someone is like, okay, we have a, a handful of several software engineers. Someone needs to kind of oversee this because maybe the CTO in that company didn't have the capacity to do that or maybe it didn't play to their strengths or something like that. And I've as someone that I'm, I run a company and I definitely have been in a similar situation where I was like, I can't be the day-to-day manager for everybody. And so it was like, well, who's, who's someone on my team in the software team that I trust? Like, I don't have to think about managing them that much. I'm like, Oh, what if I offer that role to them? Maybe they could do that, but missing the mark on the, uh, oops, that person, is really a good software developer. What does it take to be a good manager of software developers? It's a completely different thing. It doesn't mean necessarily like pick the software developer that you rely on or trust, like maybe a little bit more than some of the other people that are maybe a little younger and they're earlier on in their career or something. Was that kind of like a similar type of situation for you? Yeah. I mean, in that team, I basically ran most things like it was a scrum team and I was sort of the unofficial scrum master in the end. And I did a lot of team activities and stuff like that. And still, I wasn't, or at least didn't feel I was a good manager. 
then so it is it is sometimes it's hard to to say if you're a good fit or not i think that's true you know i think if you're got some of those if you if you're a good facilitator of you know conversations or activities within a team or ceremonies in like a scrum process sometimes did you intentionally like oh i'm going to do that or like when you became like when you were kind of leading like the scrum being the scrum master were you doing that because it felt like there was a void or you just kind of like did you kind of just nominate yourself or did the team all be like please urban you do this i sort of volunteered myself i guess i just wanted to figure out all that stuff out and i thought it would be a sort of a logical uh, progression to try to be the manager but then that's it's it's still different right a scrum is, is there's still some kind of framework or any agile process there's some framework and sort of guidelines around which stuff is working but then when you're a manager of people then there's basically right you have to deal with pers- people one on one right you have to figure out how they how they're doing and what how you can help them and stuff like that and that's turned out wasn't my best wasn't that good at it <laughs> <laughs> i um i appreciate you you know sharing this with us and our listeners i'm i sometimes wonder if there's this illusion that depending on how large of a team it is people are on as well but there's might be this illusion that if you become a manager you're going to get to be in those key conversations earlier on with other people in the business so it's not just necessarily the uh Oh, I get to manage, and now people are. I'm gonna, you know, hire and fire people on my team or whatever. I'm gonna build the best possible team that we, you know, we can. But actually, that I can be part of a conversation about the the product or the software that we're working on earlier on, so that I'm not kind of like too far downstream. Do you, have you experienced that at all? In, in, you feel like there's any merit to that? Yeah, and I mean, this is, I guess. This is where this formalization of staff engineer and stuff like that in some companies comes from because it is, that's again more technical and I guess this is sort of more of a natural progression of a, of a developer to sort of maybe still not write a lot of code but still stay more on the technical side and then you still don't manage people and you're not dealing with that too much uh, but you're sort of more playing to your strength there. Still more communication with other people, but it is, it is sort of not still still sort of not your responsibility, right? I was just reading a, or I, I can't say that I read the whole article, but I was skimming an article like maybe two hours ago, and I needed to go find it. But there was an article about something about around the staff engineer and it being, you know, sometimes people think of it as like, oh, you're you fill in gaps as a staff engineer. You're there to solve problems or help solve problems or like connect systems or people together, like understanding you're, you're kind of floating a little bit in some ways in in your work. You know, as I was saying, like for those listening, you know, could you offer them any advice on things they should be considering if they are to go down the path of, they want to go down the path of management or stay an individual contributor? What sort of questions should they ask themselves as they're kind of navigating that thought in their head? I mean, the big thing to, to remember is that this is a completely different job, right? If you've sort of started off out as a junior engineer and you're sort of progressing, you're getting better at stuff and you're sort of really sort of, you're, you're sort of at the end of the journey, but then sort of, if you then move into management, you're starting at the bottom again, right? The thing to remember there is, do you really want to do that once more, right? And then it's, it's a completely different skill set, of course. And, you need to 
figure out um, if this is even something you want to do or if you're good at. I probably should have listened to my wife and not tried it, but now I know for sure that this is not something I want to do. Yeah, and, and then it's sort of the question, either you do that or you figure out if there's companies where you can sort of progress in a way of saying, hey, now I might not be just a developer that works on a team, but maybe I support multiple teams and you sort of stay on a technical side and progress there instead of sort of resetting your career in a way, even though on the, it doesn't look like on the CV. <laughs> right, right. I think it's it's interesting where, you know, depending on the, the opportunities that your current employer can provide there's like if there's nobody else like say above a senior level developer yet because they haven't created another tier in their matrix of oh there's a staff engineer or principal engineer i don't know how long these um, titles have been around in the industry off the top of my head i don't remember them 10 15 years ago necessarily but it doesn't mean but i also remember there was an era where i worked where there were like numbers at the end of like it was software engineer like a level 3 and like i don't it was just like these level numbers like you're somehow being promoted that way curious like for people that are like in smaller organizations and they're feeling like oh well if i don't become the manager there's really no other way to grow and i don't know if that's always true or not but so i wonder if sometimes that becomes like the well if i can't become a manager then i'm going to go find a job elsewhere where i have more opportunities but i mean on the other hand if you're working at a startup i think that's sort of the perfect environment to actually try it out and if it i mean i did it for six months and then I said to my boss, hey, I don't, I'm, I'm not good at this. I, I want out in a way. In the end, I did it for about a whole year until they found a replacement. And I guess it hasn't hurt my career. So it's something you try and you sort of see it a bit from, from the other side. And then if, if you ask many people, they say it's probably good to actually understand the rest of the organization a bit better and how that actually works instead of being just a developer and then complaining about the rest of the company in a way, how it, it kind of happens too often, I guess. And so in that, in that scenario, you were able to kind of roll back or pivot within the same organization and, and not necessarily need to just like, I guess I need to go find a new job now because that didn't quite pan out the way that I hoped it would. That's good. I think if you, you know, if the listener is going into those sorts of situations, I think if, you know, I think it would be interesting because I've had people ask when we we're like, oh, we're going to hire an engineering manager. And, and some people said, oh, I, I want to apply for that position. And I'm like, well, are you sure? <laughs> like, you want to do that? Um, but then, you know, I think having conversation and being like, well, this could be, let's try this out for three, six months or something like that. Let's experiment with this. It's uh, This isn't a forever de decision we're making. So, so that way the rest of the team knows that we're going to reassess this. And then if, if, if we will treat this like, it's okay if we all we don't think this makes sense for this person to keep going if they don't feel like they'd be, be successful but it also is an interesting thing where you become a manager of your coworkers, probably and then to them to have that experience as you as their manager was that an awkward transition to, or did it, did it kind of work out itself pretty way more easier than you thought it would yeah that worked out fine I mean, on the way back, I sort of moved into a different team. This is there's a trick. <laughs> <laughs> so then that what that, that sort of seemed like the more awkward uh, transition, but in the end, it was it was all fine, no problem there. All right, so there's there, there's a secret sauce. Just find a different team within the organization. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so another topic that I wanted to cover with you 
is that because you also are a co-host of a podcast, Expanding Beyond. Firstly, was being a podcast host on your career bucket list? No, not really. Uh, I just stumbled upon it on one of my hobbies and then it sort of stuck and I thought, hey, maybe I can do one about programming it as well. And then I, I can appreciate that. So what topics are you and your co-host, uh, Monica, primarily focusing on? Yeah, so Monica is actually an engineering manager. She was also a developer. She made the transition and stayed there, I guess. <laughs> so we've, like a lot of those two-person shows where we don't interview many people, we sort of talk about whatever uh, came up in the recent times in our in our jobs with her being a manager and me being a bit more um, interested in organization and not so much anymore into technical topics that's sort of what we cover hey uh, how can agile processes help you uh, there's some kind of big big bang migration somewhere happening is that a good idea how can you smooth it out by some I don't know processes like rehearsing the migrations and stuff like that that that's sort of uh, what we cover but essentially it is us spending an hour talking about work every week or every two weeks and then other people can listen in as well I guess and you know I'm curious how does how has starting a podcast like helped you on a say the day-to-day level of your work Sometimes it's nice to actually just to talk about stuff with someone, right? It's not not just having it in your head or talking to your other half who is probably not a programmer. And it, it's nice to to have someone outside to to spitball and discuss these things. I think that actually helps to to have an outside perspective to say, hey, that's good. Maybe that part is actually isn't as bad as you think it is. Maybe. You should calm down or something. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I know you're doing in the format of you two talking together and not maybe doing interviewing like guests at, at this point. And I took the path of going on the guest path because I admittedly was just like, well, I could be super selfish and just get to talk to a lot of really cool, interesting people. And I get to learn a little bit from everybody on a regular basis. I, I don't know that I think that I've had some consistent conversations with anyone in particular, off the top of my head, that like, oh, I should hit the record button and record us chatting about this topic every week or something, or ch- talking about something related to what we're doing every week. I feel like that that actually, to what you're doing, actually it intimidates me uh, a little bit more than even when I'm, you know, the way that I'm approaching my podcast. Because I'm like, what do I have to say? You know, I've, occasionally I get to inject my commentary into these conversations, and I think there's probably definitely some threads there that people could pull from to know enough about my opinion about things, but I don't know that I could just hit the, hit the record button and just start talking about a topic. So I, I commend you for that. Yeah. Sometimes somehow we managed to find a topic almost every time. And then we just start, you know, for those also for our listeners that might be contemplating the idea of starting their own podcast. Could you, do you have any advice you could offer them on how to go about doing that? Yes. Outside of the uh, like the obvious topics related to like the type of microphone and like those types of things, like the, the other things that maybe aren't super obvious from the from the outside. So what's actually intimidating me is what you are doing because having to deal with people with uh, suspect uh, recording equipment <laughs> every time. I I did a different podcast and we had more guests there so not technical and there was this was always a struggle to get decent audio quality i mean these days 
it's actually not hard. What we are using is one of those um, browser services where you basically connect both and then it records there as separate tracks and it's easy to edit. I mean, that's sort of the big thing you have to keep in mind. The, the big amount of work is actually the editing afterwards. It sort of depends on how much work you want to put in, how, how clean it needs to be. Do you want to remove all the awkward pauses or, and stuff like that? And then editing can take, I don't know, a lot of time. So I, by now, we are using uh, an editor, a friend of mine who's giving us a good rate so we can pull it off. But I did it myself in the past and I know I wouldn't uh, have kept it, do kept doing it because that is a lot of work to get it right. It is. I, uh, when we, when I, when I proposed doing this podcast with my, um, within my company and talking to my my business partner, a couple other people, I knew that that was going to be like a huge challenge. I'm like, all right, well, not just the the interviewing and the audio quality of, of, of guests. That definitely is a, that, that is a very much a challenging thing at times. Uh, especially when you can't really do anything about it. And you're like, this is maybe the only chance to get to talk to this person. I hope I'm crossing my fingers that the audience forgives us for allowing a couple of those episodes get through from time to time. But especially when there's people fidgeting at their desk and then their little things are just like things you kind of hope are being picked up on their microphone anyhow. But when we went into the process, I was like, we need to find an editor that can just take care of all that, take care of the audio stuff to the best that we can do and find like a consistent, reasonable rate. So we found an editor before off of an online directory and this is the 123rd episode I'm recording. So he's done every single one. I've only listened to one of them with the very first one before it got published. I haven't bothered to listen to any of them until after they're published um, since then, which has been pretty awesome that I can just like, they understand it. They're really good at what they do. I don't want to learn how to be an editor myself. That's like, I knew that that wasn't going to pan out and this project would have stopped pretty quickly, I think. Were you concerned at all about um, how many episodes you would queue up before you kind of announced it to anyone or you just kind of like go for it from episode one? No, (laughs) we are not that organized. It's it's still like we don't even have a backlog, right? We just, or or a runway. It's like uh, now someone's on holiday or someone is sick, then it's done. A long longer break but if if it's just something fun for you and you have some people listen to it then it's fine and, and i guess i mean for us it is not that we want to really grow it and have a huge audience it's just we want to have fun and then other with other people listen to it then that's cool too We'll be back with our interview with Urban in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or rating us in the Spotify app, which is something I noticed you could do a couple hours ago. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now let's get back to our interview with Urban Hafnut. I was having a conversation um, at a conference last week about, I was on a panel with um, about five different podcasts for, and it was for a Ruby on Rails uh, conference here that was in, in Portland, Oregon last week. And 
we we were talking and people were talking about how a lot of them were talking, you know, or new new features in the frameworks or new trends in the in the industry. And I was like, well, I'm actually taking a very different approach where I want to talk with a lot of different people around very, very similar topics related to just taking care of existing code, long-term software maintenance type task. Because I thought that when I created this podcast idea, I was like, I want something where if I have a conversation with someone like you, Urban, where like in five years, you can listen to it again and be like, still holds value today because it's not outdated content. It just was that person at that point in time reflecting on how, where they are at that point in their career. And all the episodes for the most part, aren't trying to talk about like these new technology stacks or anything like that. And so I'm like, these are persistent topics that I feel like could be valuable to myself to listen to in like 10 years from now, let alone maybe be able to have that be something that um, other people could find some value in as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, new technologies are only interesting, I guess, in the immediate future. 15 years ago, I mean, I did start with Ruby on Rails my career and I'm still doing it, but eventually... I guess we will all move on to the next thing. I mean, maybe Ruby will rerun Rails will be, will be the next COBOL then. I don't know. but Or Shopify will be around forever. Yeah, it's, I think that's... I hope so. Uh, I think it seems to be very much helping the community for sure. What I meant there is that what you talk about and, and what we also try to talk about is more uh, more the, the... I don't know, the long-term stuff, right? I mean... Maintainable software, it doesn't really matter what technology it is, right? It matters how you structure it, what you do and, and how you do it and how the organization functions to make it actually work. You know, I want to take a quick pivot back to earlier. We, you know, we, I know that you maybe don't use the, the term technical debt often, but for maintenance type work, do you have... Have you has your team found good patterns for how to allocate time and put energy into dealing with some of those maintenance type tasks that need to take place from time to time? So in my team, we are kind of lucky uh, that we are sort of splitting out part of of the uh, monolith that the company has into something new, and we're sort of building in all this maintenance and and rewriting work in there to say hey. We're not going to take the existing code and, and move it out because it's like five, six years old. Um, some of the stuff that I wrote in the beginning. <laughs> and now we know much better what it should look like and we're going to rewrite it. We are sort of adding new features in, but we are also taking the extra time to sort of put it on a good foundation so that it um, is more maintainable. That's sort of uh, the approach we are taking here. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I haven't had good experiences with a sort of the style of r tickets that do some refactoring or some cleanup. Oftentimes, they don't really get prioritized. Um, so in my career, I've most of the time just snuck it in. Basically, hey, there's one. Here's the feature, and here's the second PR or something where I do some cleanup in in around that area. Also, not true. So in this team, we also do some. Tickets that do clean up, but they are sort of intentionally very, very small. So then it's say, hey, one or two in a sprint we can do because they don't take a lot, take take up a lot of time. But when you do that consistently for months and months, then it actually moves the needle. Interesting. Do you are there any 
like data metrics that your team tracks that kind of measure how long it takes to for your build to run or those types of metrics, things like that that you pay attention to related to the the software delivery cycle that you kind of keep an eye on and be like, oh, this is starting to slow down and we sh- we we need to speed something up that's not necessarily like the just like a request on like a web page or something. Yeah, not for this team because like I said, it's a, I don't know, half a year, I don't know, nine months old Rails project. So it's like continuous delivery and pretty fast and there's like test suite that takes two minutes to run or something. So not there. But um, the monolith that is is kind of problematic. That's almost ten years old now, and it it's it was written without any tests in the beginning. Like built by an agency, it needed to have a prototype to show it to a customer, and we're sort of still fighting with it because even after ten years, there's still a lot of manual testing going on to make sure that it actually works. Because that's the danger of adding tests after the fact that you then still end up with a system that is so tangled that a change in one side, one area can sort of break stuff in the other. And there we are sort of trying to move away. And I think that it is it would probably be valuable to sort of keep track of how often do you release um, and how long do those releases take and stuff like that. But we're not there yet. Let's see. Okay. You know, as you're kind of untangling that monolith and, and sounds like maybe rewriting or migrating, do you have, are there any patterns that your team is finding some success with there outside of it or you're just building a like for like application over a site or you know putting um, microservices into play or something there patterns i don't know i I think for us the big thing is to actually understand what the system is doing before doing anything um that's a hard problem in itself i would say after five six years you it becomes hard to really understand what was intentional on how the system works (laughs) And what was just a side effect and you're not sure if this is needed or not. So I think this is this is sort of uh, the, the important part for us to understand what does the system do now. Um, and if we redo it, is this even the way forward? Because I think that's sort of the perfect time to say, hey, if we do it this other way, then it uh, gives us almost the same... Uh, benefits but it's just much more simple to do so why don't we cut this one corner and then we have a simpler system moving forward and the customers are still happy so let's say there's some folks that are listening who are working in uh, there maybe a rewrite isn't going to happen anytime soon in their environment and they're they've joined a project in the last maybe a year or two and it's been around for a decade let's just say approximately and there are what they see is like a lot of challenges where it seems like the teams aren't prioritizing cleanup tasks. Yep, like if someone might be pairing with someone, they're like, "Oh, this area is kind of weird," and they're like, "Oh, yeah, it's like that. We'll get to that someday." And so, and that those types of situations, what what advice could you offer them on how to start? You know, incrementally trying to move the needle in like a better direction versus just being well. It seems like nobody here is really prioritizing that or it doesn't seem like it's a priority of the product team like it's not showing up in our sprints um and maybe i'm still kind of feeling new enough that i'd like well and who am i to kind of question why things are the way they are any any advice for people like that yeah so uh, what i found is that if you do it in small enough increments but you're doing it steadily and all the time 
I think that that's the way to go. So I, one of the things I did on the side for one of the projects, they at some point decided to switch from uh, mini test to RSpec. And then when it came on, it was like 50-50, right? You had two test suites and sometimes there was some surprising behavior because you had to just two setups and to initialize the tests. And then sometimes they worked differently and uh, it was just a big mess. And I had my, I don't know, I wrote, I wrote a small script that, had, uh, that sort of calculated how many tests do I already have in RSpec, how many I left. And then I just, I don't know, once, twice a week, I just picked one file or just one test and I rewrote it. And it took me a few months, but it's, in the end, uh, it was all done, right? And I think, of course, different for everyone, but for me, it sort of works well to see, hey, there's a number, it's going up, I'm doing something that helps. So to, for me, that is, was sort of the motivating thing to say, hey, it's now a week later, I, I compare the numbers I had last week to what I have now, and I see I moved, I moved some tests over and I sort of improved the system. And I think that sort of can work. Obviously, product will go, is going to say, hey, you're going to spend two weeks now rewriting stuff and maybe you're going to introduce bugs and it's going to take another week or two to fix it all. Is that really worth it? And I guess that's a valid concern. So I guess we just have to do it in smaller increments, I guess. I think you had mentioned earlier that sometimes you just try to sneak work in. Was that something that you did it under the realm of sneakily migrating without having to share that with the product team or was that something you you gotten kind of the thumbs up to do i mean that that's how i thought about it in the beginning and um, these days i think of it as just good uh development practice to sort of spend some time leaving uh, the system cleaner than what you found it so in a sense yes but it sort of depends on how you look at it right i mean you if you really spend the time to say here there's some small thing, I'm going to clean that up. And next time I do this here, then you sort of bit by bit get to some some place that is better. Obviously, there are some changes that are not possible that way. But most times, I think you can actually improve the system a lot by doing that consistently. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and find your podcast online? Yeah, so I do have a Twitter account, but the only thing I post there is links to... Uh, the podcast so i guess the best is uh, the podcast itself so it's either expanding beyond.it or just expanding beyond on any podcatcher of your choice excellent well it's been such a delight having you join us on maintainable urban thank you so much for stopping by the talk shop yeah thanks for having me Oh, oh, oh.